Good morning, saints. Good morning, church. Welcome to Awaken. So recently, my wife and I have been wrestling with this dilemma that maybe some of you others are wrestling with as well. And that dilemma has been, in our current economic environment, what should we do with our house? So we're blessed to have a good bit of equity in our home, and we've been trying to decide, do we refinance, do we consider a home equity line of credit, or do we just kind of sit and do nothing? And what complicates this is that right now, in this season of life, um, everything is just more expensive than it used to be. This might be the most expensive season of our family's lives. So we have things in our home that are breaking down and needing to get either repaired or replaced. We have two kids in college right now, and two kids, two girls in high school, and they are not cheap. So that kind of adds up over time. Every dollar is getting stretched thinner than it used to be stretched. And when you're in that place, when you feel like every dollar you have is being stretched farther than it's been stretched before, and you're not even sure it's going to cover all the things that need to get covered. Those are the moments when your beliefs about money and belief about what God says about money gets tested most. And that's the season that my wife and I are in right now. And maybe that's a season that a number of you are in as well, because I'm pretty confident we are not alone. Which leads us into the series that we're going to be spending the next five weeks going through. And a series about stewardship, a series about finances that we've entitled My Offering. So two things I want to say about this series before we dive in. First, I know that talking about money is always going to be a bit of an awkward experience. Kind of like me in middle school. So picture slim, really skinny and scrawny. Uh, braces, acne, and a perm. That's awkward, right? So that was, those were my middle school years. And what, that being said, uh, going through middle school, not, maybe not just for me, but for all of us as well, we know the best way to get through it is, is you kind of sometimes have to get through awkwardness in order to get to the other side. And that's kind of what we're going to do over the course of this series, is to realize that, yeah, this is a bit of an awkward topic to discuss in church. I don't even know if I want to bring church into my finances, or necessarily maybe even sometimes bring God into my finances and what we're thinking about with our finances. It's a bit awkward, but to get to a healthy place, oftentimes awkwardness is what we need to go through. And so that being said, not only is our church going to spend five weeks teaching on how to have a biblical perspective on our finances, on finances in general, but our church is going to also be offering um, a six-week-long pre-service seminar on how to more effectively and practically manage your finances. It's a financial stewardship class. We're going to be launching in two weeks, and Larry will announce a bit more of it at the end of our time. But what that entails is coming about an hour or so before service, going through, I'm sorry, about an hour and a half, so starting about right before nine, and uh, taking some time where six weeks we're going to go through practicals on how to better manage your finances. And hopefully that will be a time that not only equips you, challenges you, but effectively equips you to be able to better see from God's perspective and use what he has given us 
in a biblical way. So I strongly exercise you guys to sign up and not miss the opportunity. So that's the first housekeeping item I wanted to cover. The second is that any time we go through biblical practicals, um, we try and make an Awaken Q&A series. So that's what this is going to be as well. And for those of you who are not familiar with Awaken Q&A, basically what that means is that during the teaching, if there's anything you hear that brings up a question, comment, or thought, and I've had even disagreements on, right? Feel free to text that question, comment, or thought to awakenqna at gmail.com. It'll be on every slide. And at the end of our time, we'll take a few minutes and tackle those. All good? Housekeeping done? Then let's dive in. And let's dive in with starting with this declaration. We all worry about money. All of us. We worry about not having enough money, we all worry about how to best manage our money. We all worry about who we should and maybe shouldn't be giving our money to. And sometimes the more paranoid of us are even worried that someone might come and steal our money, take our money from us. We are all worried about money. Even Christians, despite the fact that God tells us not to. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shares these words with his followers, Matthew chapter 6. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Is it life more than food and your body more than clothing? What Jesus is teaching here is that you cannot serve God and also be enslaved to money. Because you're either going to put your trust in God to provide for you, or you're going to put your trust in money. You can't put your trust in both at the same time. It's not possible. And this is how you are to know that you're enslaved to money, right? When you worry about everyday life. When you worry about not having the things you're trusting money to provide. Worry is what this world's system of economy is built upon, right? Worry is the engine that drives most of us to do the financial things we do. And oftentimes, worry is the engine that drives us to work, to save, to invest, to buy, and that truth is not limited to poor people. It's not limited to middle-class folks. Even the rich fall in this category. There was a survey done of those who have assets of over a million dollars, and they found that 69% of those who have assets of over a million dollars are worried that they don't have enough money. So worry is the engine that drives how the world views money. Worry is what unbelievers do. And this, in this passage, what God is saying is that is what unbelievers do. That should not be what you do. That shouldn't be how you respond. You have nothing to worry about. As a matter of fact, worry doesn't add any value to your life. Worrying doesn't make your hair, like, stay in, right? It doesn't keep you from going bald. Doesn't, worry doesn't do a lot of things. It has no value to us. Will not God? who cares about the flowers of the field and the birds of the air, not, and who loves you even more than the birds of the sky and the flowers of the field, will he not take care of you if he takes care 
of them. Worry is what unbelievers do. Those who put their trust in money rather than in God. And they should worry. They're supposed to worry. Because they have nothing else. That's not for us. We don't need to worry because we have a generous God. A generous God who through his generosity towards us, frees us as well to be generous towards others. If we trust in God first, right? Can you imagine if our hope and our trust is in God first, and we're not tied down by the way this world sees money with worry and anxiety and fear? Can you imagine how freeing that must be? That freedom is what God wants us to experience. So that's what this series is going to be built upon, this idea of shifting from worry to generosity, from anxiety to experiencing freedom. And to do that, to experience this idea, right, generosity, it entails understanding God's generosity towards us, and then having received that generosity to be able to demonstrate that to others as well. So I know, for those of you who are Christian, who have been part of church for a while, you're probably thinking, oh, Frank, I thought you were going to share some huge secret here. Generosity? I get that. As a matter of fact, I probably won't say it too loudly, but I am a generous person, right? That's what you're thinking. It's like, oh, cool, Frank. I thought you were going to talk about some big secret here. Being generous, I can do that. As a matter of fact, I'm already doing that. And so that's fantastic. Go ahead and keep talking, Frank, but you're not talking necessarily to me. I'll just be polite and sit here, right? And I would say, I don't know if that's true. And the reason why I say that is because the world's definition of generosity differs from how God defines generosity. And I bet oftentimes we've never thought about the difference. We oftentimes think about generosity as being based on how much we give. But you know what's fascinating is in the Gospels, Jesus tells us numerous stories, one in particular that says, it's, that makes it sound like how much you give doesn't matter. Do you remember that story about the widow and Jesus sitting in front of the tithe box with his disciples and watching people, right, these religious leaders give a bunches of money, right, giving of their riches, and then here comes this widow who gives two pennies. And what does Jesus says? He says that she's given more than all the others. So generosity is not defined by how much we give. Generosity, sometimes we can tend to define it as, well, generosity is when I'm not giving to myself, but I'm giving to God and to God's work. Well, that's not true either. As a matter of fact, Jesus commended the Pharisees, even in one of his critiques towards them. He's like, well, you do tithe faithfully, even down to the smallest leaf of a mint. And I'm getting on you, not because you don't tithe faithfully and give to God and give to God's work. I'm, I'm critiquing you because there are even more important things that you're neglecting. So generosity is not about how much you give. It's not even about giving to others, giving to God and giving to God's work. And oftentimes we can measure generosity as being an attribute that reflects how much we sacrifice. And Jesus would contradict that as well, I think. And say, well, these sacrifices that these Pharisees have made, they sacrifice as well for God all the time. The problem isn't that they don't sacrifice. The problem is they want everyone to know how much they're sacrificing. One thing is clear, though, that comes out as you read the scriptures and focus on this idea of generosity is that God's definition, there is a difference in God's world between being generous 
and being a person who gives. They are not the same thing. Not everyone who gives is generous. Not everyone who gives a lot is generous. Not everyone who gives to God is generous. And not everyone who gives sacrificially is generous. So who is? One of the interesting stories that kind of build on this idea of what generosity looks like in the kingdom of God is found in this parable in the book of Luke. And uh, for those of you who were here during the course of our last series, uh, we went through a series on parables. And what we defined at the time is a parable is when Jesus, happens when Jesus takes familiar, or familiar ideas, familiar reference points to teach an unfamiliar lesson. Right? That's what a parable oftentimes is. And for me, no parable is more confusing or teaches an unfamiliar lesson than the parable we're going to walk through this morning. It's found in the book of Luke, chapter 16, and this is how it begins. Luke 16, starting verse 1. Jesus told this story to his disciples. There was a certain rich man who had a manager handling his affairs. One day, a report came that the manager was wasting his employer's money. So the employer called him in and said, what's this I hear about you? Get your report in order because you're going to be fired, Donald Trump style. The manager thought to himself, now what? My boss has fired me. I don't have the strength to dig ditches, and I'm too proud to beg. Ah, I know. I know how to ensure that I'll have plenty of friends who will give me a home when I'm fired. So stop there. Don't continue on in the story. So what is happening is there is a rich man. And what you'll find is oftentimes when Jesus tells the parables, there's someone who represents God and there's someone who represents us. And so this parable really isn't all that different with a small twist that we'll come to in just a little bit. The rich man here has so much wealth that he doesn't even manage it himself. He hires someone to take care of all the money that he has. The problem isn't too much wealth. The problem is the person he hired has chosen to be dishonest, who has chosen to be careless, who is wasting the rich man's money. And so the rich man, after catching him, tells him, you're fired, and gives him a small window of time to straighten up the books, to make things right, and then to go. Continues, verse 5. So this manager, he invited each person who owed money to his employer, the rich man, to come and discuss the situation. He asked the first one, how much do you owe him? The man replied, I owe him 800 gallons of olive oil. So the manager said to him, take the bill and quickly change it to 400 gallons. And how much do you owe my employer? He asked the next man. I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat, was the reply. Here, the manager said, take the bill and change it to 800 bushels, which wasn't as quite a good a deal as the first one but the manager goes so basically the idea that jesus is communicating in this part right is that the manager comes up devises this clever little plan and he's like i'm going to go to all the people and the idea the implication in here is that the manager does this with everyone who owes the rich man money right so these are just the two first examples where this manager goes to everyone who owes this rich man money and says hey i don't have a lot of time here how much do you owe well i owe 800 gallons right here here Here's the contract. Just scratch that out, change it to 400. Give me a 50% discount. The guy's like, seriously? Whoa, that is awesome. Thank you so much for doing that. Hey, if there's anything I can do for you in return, just let me know. And then he goes and does this again, right? He says, hey, buddy, how much do you owe my master? Ah, I owe him 1,000 bushels of wheat. Hey, 
right here. Let's change that to 800, shall we? Dude, are you serious? I needed that. Thank you so much. Hey, if there's anything I can do for you, just let me know. I'd be happy to pay you back. Dude, I'll be counting on you, right? So this is the conversation that's happening over and over and over again. And the implication, right, is that the manager is choosing to use his master's wealth. It's not his money. He's using the master's money in order to win him favor. And then, now, if you can picture Jesus telling this story, I told you earlier, right, familiar ideas, he's teaching unfamiliar lessons. So the people are leaning in. And if you can imagine, if you've never heard this story before, what you would be thinking right now, right? Oh, busted, right? This guy's going to get it. And then the twist happens. Jesus tells him how the master responds. The rich man had to admire the dishonest rascal for being so shrewd. And it is true that the children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them than are the children of light. Here's the lesson. Use your worldly resources to benefit others and make friends. Then, when your possessions are gone, they will welcome you to an eternal home. The rich man commends the dishonest manager. He goes to him and says, ha ha, you got me. Dude, great job. That was really clever what you did right there. He was still fired, I'm pretty sure, right? But he's like, dude, I'll give you some credit. You took my money to secure your future. That was pretty slick. And the people listening to this story are confused. And when Jesus tells this story, and it's, again, it's not necessarily a true story. Jesus was telling this to illustrate a point. And the point he's making is this shrewd manager operates like how much of the world operates, right? The people of this world, they realize that we only have a limited amount of time and we only have a limited amount of resources in this life. And so we're going to spend it in a way that takes that limited time, takes those limited opportunities into account. We're going to spend as if we don't have forever. And so they can, because they have that mentality, they can relate to other people in the world better than Christians can. And this is what Jesus says to them. He says, this is the lesson. Learn from them. Use worldly wealth and worldly resources to benefit others and to win yourself friends. In other words, spend what is temporary with a sense of urgency in order to gain what lasts in order to gain what is eternal. Spend what is temporary with a bit of urgency, knowing your time is limited and your opportunities are limited, in order to gain for yourself that which lasts, in order to gain for yourself that which is eternal. And that right there is the key to what it means to live a generous life. In the kingdom of heaven, God views money, God views resources differently than we do. First of all, God owns it all. He owns everything. But in God's perspective, in God's kingdom, worldly wealth is simply a tool. It is a means, not an end. Too many people in this world have chosen to make money and things the end. As in, that's what my life is about, accumulating stuff. And what God says is, no, no, that's not how my kingdom works. In my kingdom, 
Worldly wealth is a means to accomplish an end, not the end in of itself. And that perspective puts us on the path of the righteous. I'm sorry, the path of the generous. The path of the generous accepts that the goal is not more money and the goal is not more stuff. The path of the generous accepts that the amount of money and the amount of resources that we have isn't the most important thing, but what we do with it. And then the path of the generous accepts that joy in life comes from realizing that eternity is the end. And what we live for and what we give to needs to be bigger than us. Jesus continues, verse 10. If you are faithful in little things, you'll be faithful in large ones. But if you're dishonest in little things, you won't be honest with greater responsibilities. And if you're untrustworthy about worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? And if you're not faithful with other people's things, why should you be trusted with things of your own? This is a principle Jesus teaches over and over and over and over again in the scriptures. Be faithful with little, and you'll be entrusted with more, much. Be faithful in small, and you'll be given more. That principle plays itself out over and over and over again in scriptures. And it's not just about money. It's about everything. Be faithful in the small things, and then you'll be entrusted with more. And so if you're in this room today and you're like, well, I'd like to consider, I'd like to know more about what leadership looks like or how to have greater influence, which is kind of what Jesus is talking about in this story, then the response Jesus would have is very simple, right? Be faithful in the small things, even in the things that seem insignificant, and the God who sees even the insignificant will trust you with more. There's some of us in this room who are already in a position of leadership, who already have a good bit of influence. And what, what does Jesus say to you? He says the same idea, right? He's like, you know, sometimes when we get into this place of leadership, we start to cut corners. And we neglect the small things. We think that we're, uh, you know, we're too important to be faithful to attend all of the little meetings that we're supposed to attend. We're too big to do all the little serving tasks that maybe other people should do. We're too busy doing important things to bother with people who aren't all that important. And if that's you, if that's how you're feeling, be careful and be warned. Being faithful with little, and you'll be entrusted with much. Small things matter, especially to God. And then Jesus closes, Luke 16, verse 13. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. So here we are right back where we began, except this time in the book of Luke rather than in the book of Matthew. But it's the same idea. You cannot serve two masters at the same time. You'll either trust in God to provide or you're going to trust in money and yourself to provide. Choose which one you're going to put your trust in. In a few minutes, we're going to tackle our Q&A. So uh, if you have any questions, comments, or thoughts based on what I've shared already, go ahead and text them now to awakenqna at gmail.com. And as you do that, I want to close with this thought, this idea. Right? Maybe some of you are in this room right now, and you're like, you know, Frank, I know you've gone through this story, and I'm sure you did the best job you knew how. Kudos, right? But I still don't get it. I still don't understand how Jesus can be using a story about a deceitful manager 
who takes his master's money to benefit himself and his own future is supposed to be an illustration of generosity. That just doesn't make sense. Why would Jesus use a story of a dishonest manager stealing his master's money to benefit himself be a story of generosity, be an illustration of what generosity in God's kingdom is supposed to look like? And here's my answer for that one, right? Uh, how many of you guys, out of curiosity, have siblings? Like, and younger ones, right? Younger brothers, younger sisters. So if you have, you'll probably be able to relate to me. I have a younger brother. His name is Perry. He's two and a half years younger than me, and he is a punk. Always been a punk. That's okay. We love each other. We've had some rocky times, but we do. And growing up, I remember how my parents, okay, let's be honest, mostly my mom, who I hope doesn't watch this, but a lot of times my mom, right? And she'd be like, Frank, why don't you eat your vegetables? See, look, even Perry's eating his vegetables. You should do it as well, right? Yeah, that's part of being in Chinese family, but still, that's what, you know, older brothers and older siblings have to deal with as well, right? Frank, how come you didn't clean your room? Look, even Perry, and he's two and a half years younger than you. Even he cleaned his room. Why can't you? And if you can relate to that idea, right, that, hey, Frank, how come you didn't do this, but your little brother or your little sister did, and if they did it, of course you should have, right? If you can understand that feeling, then you get what Jesus is talking about in this story. Because that's, I think, when I imagine this story, I think that's the tone Jesus is using when he's telling this story, right? The perspective that he's sharing when he shares this story. And he's like saying, guys, even unbelievers know how to take temporary wealth and turn it into good. Why haven't you figured out to do the same thing? God wants you to do the same thing with a little bit of urgency. The difference is they turn their temporary wealth into their own good. And you, I want you to take temporary wealth and turn it into kingdom good, right? What will benefit God? That's the tone that Jesus is talking to them in. You guys should know better. Why do I have to point out the world? The world gets it. Why don't you? They do it for their own gain. You, guys, you do it for the kingdom. And that's the point of this parable. Because what Jesus says is that's what shrewd people do. That's what generous people do. Generosity is taking what is temporary and turning it into eternal good, into kingdom good. The world turns temporary into stuff. You turn temporary into stories. And which would you rather have? Because that's what generosity is all about. Less stuff, more stories. Stories about missionaries that we've been supporting for years. And because we're supporting their work in our finances, in our prayers, we're a part of all the things that they're doing in the name of Jesus. Stories about seeing over 700 people come to Christ because we were a part of helping support that mission trip to the Dominican Republic. Stories about how we gave hundreds of dollars, thousands of dollars in 2013 and 2014 to build out this space. Build strong. You remember? For those of you who were here during that time. And what that means is that because you did, you have been a part of every salvation, every baptism, every partner that has come to faith and, and be, we've been able to see meet in this space. 
And the question that Jesus is presenting us, right, not directly, indirectly, is what do you want? Do you want more stuff or do you want more stories? Because let me ask you something. Is there anyone in this room that regrets, right, regrets the money that you sent off to help support a mission work? Is there any one of you who say, you know what, dang it, that money I gave to build strong to help build out this church space, man, I could use that to buy me a watch. I could use that to buy me another phone, right? How many of you lie awake at night thinking, gosh, I regret giving my money to God's work because I could have had so much more stuff if I spent it on myself? No one in here thinks that. Or if you do, well, you know. You are not going to stand before God someday. I promise you, you will not someday stand before God and say, dang it, Lord, I'm so sorry. If I'd have known that you were coming back today, I would have gone out and bought some more stuff before I showed up in front of you. Right? None of us are going to say that. But what we might say is, Lord, if I'd have known you were coming back so soon, I would have given more of my life, more of my things, so I could have more stories and more reason to celebrate in your presence. You're never going to re regret the stuff you give up and invest in kingdom work. Never. And that is what a generous person realizes. A generous person is defined by God. I want to close with this passage in 2 Corinthians 9, verses 6 through 8. Remember this. A farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop. But the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give. And don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share for others. If you ever wonder about what generosity means in the kingdom, this is it right here, right? Give much and do it cheerfully, without hesitation, without regret. And God trusts. Have the mindset and perspective that God's going to provide all that you need and more. So much more that you're going to have plenty to give to others. Amen? All right, let's tackle some Q&A, if we've got any. Because I know I made that perfectly clear, and there can't be any questions. Psych. All right. God says to rely on him to provide. But how can you tell the difference? Is there a clear line between trusting him to provide and relying on him to do everything for you? God says to rely on him to provide. But how can you tell the difference? Is there a clear line between trusting him to provide and relying on him? And relying on him to do everything for you. Okay, so I guess, I think what you're saying with this question is, I'm confused sometimes in how much responsibility I have to go work and to make money and to buy food and go shopping. Does this mean I don't need to go shopping at all anymore? Is that what it means that God's going to provide for us? And we'll say, no, that's not necessarily the implication. But then how do I know the difference? And here's how I would say the best way to know the difference is, right? Are you worried and are you anxious? Because if you are that means that there's some part of you that says it belongs to me. It's my deal. And if I don't take care of it, no one will. That's where anxiety and worry comes from, right? If our trust truly is, God, you're going to provide. I'm just going to be faithful, a faithful steward to what you've given. Then I don't have worry 
I don't have anxiety. I don't have fear. I think that's the easiest way to be able to distinguish the difference between them. So hopefully that tackled the question you were asking. Uh, could this concept of spending what is temporary with a sense of urgency also be applied to time as well as money? Oh, absolutely. The idea of generosity, and that's why I've, used, I've tried to use over and over again, not just our, the idea of money, but resources and things, right? Because it's not, to, and including time, right? Everything we have outside of Christ is limited. And what God is saying is invest what is limited to gain what is eternal. That is a payoff that will pay off every single time. Right? Outside of Christ, all you have and all you are is limited. Invest what is limited for that which lasts. So, yes, it can include time as well. Can you elaborate on how a worldly thing can achieve the eternal? I thought it was only by faith that we can have eternal life. Can you elaborate on how a worldly thing can achieve the eternal? I thought it was only by faith that we can have eternal life. Yeah. So that's a great question. So I just said a moment ago that everything outside of Christ is, is limited and temporary, right? That includes our lives. None of us are going to live forever. Like our physical bodies won't live forever. The money that we have isn't going to last forever. The things we have are going to decay and eventually be destroyed. And everything that this world kind of gets obsessed about is temporary. Right? But relationship, that, is, that has the potential to be eternal, right? Every salvation, every, every friendship, right, that is lasting, that um, our relationship with God is eternal. And then there are things that we invest, Jesus tells us, right, that you can accomplish nothing apart from me. Abide in me and remain in me and you'll bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. So that idea, I'm assuming, we all kind of get, we all kind of understand. So the question you're asking is, well, then what Jesus says in, in Hebrews, right, is without faith, it's impossible to please me. Isn't it faith that accomplishes um, the eternal, right? Uh, is, is faith the only thing that has eternal value? And I'd say no, not necessarily. Um, that our lives, are, which are temporary, God tells us in Romans 12, right, that to lay our lives down, to sacrifice our lives, offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, right, and to see God transform it into good. So our lives, which are temporary, can be invested for eternal good. The faith aspect says when we offer, we offer by faith, right? When we give our temporary money to eternal things, give by faith, give in faith and see what God is going to do and how he will use it to accomplish eternal purposes. So, yeah, I think faith is the attitude and the spirit with which we do, um, you know, kingdom giving, right? Whether it's giving of our lives, our time, our things, our money, whatever the case it may be. Does that kind of clarify? If not, charge me up afterwards. All right, we'll tackle this one, and then if I find that I am using my money on way more stuff than stories, what can I do to change that? If I find I'm using my money on way more stuff than stories, what can I do to change that? First of all, that is a great question, and I appreciate the humility in asking it. Because I'll bet that a lot of us in here 
we, if we were to be honest, we probably spend on too much stuff, and we oftentimes spend on stuff rather than stories. Um, so we'll start here, and maybe this is the clinical side of me coming in, right? Um, I'd probably start and say, all right, Lord, let's look, do a little inventory in life right now. Why am I so obsessed with stuff? The stuff I have, the stuff I don't have but want, um, what is it that's driving that little obsession there? I think that's a good place to begin because right there you're going to find that you're going to have to deal with a lot of uncomfortable questions that buying stuff is covering up, right? I buy stuff to deal with the fact that I'm a bit insecure with my life and having things makes me feel satisfied, makes me feel like I'm more valuable, makes me feel like whatever the case may be, right? Um, I think there are certain questions that we don't want to ask about um, our lives, and we cover it up through buying and accumulating stuff. I think that's always going to be a good place to start, and to be able to start on your knees, right, and say, Lord, what is it about my life that causes me to want stuff more than you, right, more than I want to spend time with you, more than I want to spend time with your people, more than I want to invest my stuff and my life and my thing into the things that you care about. You know, when you read the scriptures, um, so this is off the top of my head, so I could be wrong or missing something. So if I am, call me on it later, gently and in love. But when I understand the scriptures, I feel like God really only tells us to give to just a few things, right? He tells us to give to him, right? Our tithe. He says, hey, what you have Give 10% of it back to me. And the reason is not because God needs your stuff. God already has and owns everything. It's to remind you. It's to be a consistent and constant reminder to you that this isn't yours. It's mine. You're just a steward. Right? That's one of the things God consistently commands in the scriptures. Give back to God. Secondly, he talks about uh, when you give, give to support your family. Right? He who does not support and care for his family is worse than an unbeliever. So, yeah, you have responsibilities to support and care for and financially give to your family. That doesn't mean that every one of your kids needs a brand new car, right, needs a Tesla when they drive out of here. There's a difference between needs and wants. We get it. But that is part of our responsibility as well. And so when we're giving to God and we're giving to support and care for and provide for the needs of our family, that's in accordance with what God wants. He also talks about giving to the poor. And he says give to the poor. I don't know if it's necessarily just those who are financially poor. I think it is give to those who are in need. And there are plenty of people in need. And this is one of the things that God says, I want you to set money aside to give to those in need. Make that a priority with your life. And then the fourth thing he says, he says uh, give to missions, right? Give to the work of the church. Give to the work of advancing the gospel. Give to the work Paul over and over again commends the churches, right? Hey, take up a collection. Great job. I am grateful for the intentionality with which you supported our work, right? These are the things that are kingdom priorities. And so if I know in my life, these are the things I'm prioritizing. I prioritize giving to God for providing for the needs and caring for our family, providing for the needs of others as they come up, as God brings them in front of me, and to giving to his missional work, to his work. Then everything else, I think God's like, all right, you have a bit of flexibility, right? Use it wisely. Don't be foolish. Don't get into debt but spend wisely, right? And I think those are areas where God does give us a bit of freedom. So the answer to your question, right? If I'm accumulating more stuff than I am stories, I'd say the starting point is get on your knees and saying, Lord, what am I valuing about stuff 
that you might not, that might be wrong or might be a bit off track, right? What lies am I believing that causes me, that compels me to spend on stuff and spend on me? That's going to be the starting point. And then after God brings that out to you, to say, all right, Lord, I need to repent. God, I am going to trust you, however challenging it might be. And the way I'm going to trust you is by reshaping the way I think to start giving to the things you tell me to give to you first. In other words, God, your priorities trump mine from here on out. That's the way I would encourage you off the top of my head to shape that. So uh, maybe a, a one-on-one conversation can help. If it does, grab me, grab one of your pastors anytime. But that'd be our starting point. I need to wrap up. I appreciate your questions and comments and thoughts. And man, I'm so sorry for all the ones I didn't hit because, you know, I was slow. Um, three minutes? No, I got to wrap up. So let me close up in a word of prayer. Then we'll have Larry run up some announcements. And uh, thanks. I hope you guys are excited about this series as I am. Lord, thank you so much for this time, for this morning, for the opportunity, joy, and privilege of being able to come into your presence to seek your face, God, to desire your heart, to want to know the things that you desire passionately and for us to get passionate about those same things. God, we have already spent enough time consumed by the things we want to do and we want for ourselves. And Lord, we want to decide today to say, Lord, what you want matters more. And the way you want to do it is going to be the way we decide to do it from this moment forward, Lord. Your priorities will trump mine. So God, I pray that each and every one of us will have the humility to be able to come before you and not only acknowledge you, but to surrender to you. I thank you for these saints. I thank you for their hearts, their passion, and the desire to not only know you, but to obey you. And I pray that you give us the strength and the will to do so. Day after day, moment by moment, to destroy the flesh and to surrender to your spirit. And in so doing, God, I pray that we would experience more and more the life and the joy that you have for us. In Jesus' name.